What It Takes is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, BakerBots. Founders and leaders of clean energy companies around the world turn to BakerBots for legal advice at every stage of their journey, from incorporation to exit. They look to people like Travis Wofford, a partner at the firm, for comprehensive advice on raising capital, protecting their ideas, and navigating the regulatory maze in order to bring innovations to market faster. That's why Baker Botts has been around for 180 years. We're trying to find the innovators and say, look, we've done this before. We know what's coming down the road. Why don't we help you plan for that so that you can attack the market and grow your business and be successful in the way that you really envision for your product and your ideas? BakerBots knows energy, they know technology, and they know the needs of entrepreneurs that are pushing the boundaries of both. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to lawyers like Travis. Visit BakerBots.com. Hey there, this is Emily. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that Powerhouse is hiring for a marketing manager to lead our marketing and communications to help us bring on new clients and maximize our climate impact. The marketing manager will develop marketing strategies to facilitate business development, they'll lead Powerhouse's digital platforms, including this very podcast, and maintain and grow Powerhouse as a leading voice in climate tech innovation. To learn more, click on the link in the show notes or visit powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund. F-U-N-D forward slash careers. Also, we're going to do a second and final round of our giveaway of limited edition What It Takes Crewnecks. To enter, to win, and to help more people hear stories like this one, simply leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or post about the podcast on LinkedIn or Twitter using the hashtag What It Takes. Each review or social post made before April 19th will count as one entry and will randomly choose and announce the winner in an upcoming show. Last month's winner was Tim Hayde, who said, I love this show. I learn a ton about climate leaders and how they navigate challenges associated with building impactful companies. Listening to the show is really inspiring and makes me better at my job. Tim, I hope you wear your limited edition What It Takes gear with pride. Now, on with the show. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. To reduce greenhouse gas emissions quickly, we need to electrify as much of the economy as possible. And we need to use clean sources of power like wind and solar to make that electricity. But electrifying the economy from heating and cooling to transport requires a steady supply of power at all times. And that's where things get tricky. Batteries are one option for providing backup power when wind and solar is limited. But batteries in their current form aren't always cost effective, especially at industrial scale. And for now, they only provide energy for a short period of time. The other option, generators. Generators can provide power whenever it's needed and ensure that essential sites like grocery stores and hospitals always have access to reliable electricity. But today's generators burn lots of oil and gas, including some of the dirtiest types of fuels available. So what will it take to replace millions of industrial generators around the globe with cleaner versions? Shannon Miller, CEO and co-founder of Mainspring Energy, has an answer. We built something called a linear generator, which is a new type of power generation system. So we produce electricity that helps our customers save money, add resilience, and support their sustainability goals. 
Mainspring has designed a generator for the 21st century, making it cleaner, more efficient, and capable of being powered by nearly any fuel. On the outside, it looks like a big shipping container. On the inside, it's a machine that's pushing the boundaries of flexible on-site power. A linear generator is really a whole new category of power generation. So it's not an engine, it's not a fuel cell, but it really takes the best attributes of both and combines them together. A linear generator is like an air hockey table wrapped in a tube. Instead of burning fuels, Mainspring's machine uses oscillators driven by air springs to create a flameless reaction inside a pressure chamber. No combustion means very little air pollution. And the system is designed to switch seamlessly between hydrogen, fossil gas, or biogas, providing a low or no carbon supplement to wind, solar, and batteries. We can add resilience by being the backbone of a microgrid. Uh, and we're more fuel flexible than fuel cells or engines, which helps customers switch over to things like hydrogen without having to get new hardware or, or install a new system. The generator itself is groundbreaking, but the system around it, the software and controls, are what make it a great match for a grid with lots of variable renewable energy. We use software to enable a much more flexible hardware system, and that allows us to really get the flexibility that we can achieve with fuels, with load tracking, with ramping, with supporting renewables. And so when you start to build out your grid and try to build out a resilient and reliable grid on solar and wind, you realize that you have to firm them, you have to support them. And that's really where we come in. So we can support the solar and wind through hours, days, weeks, and seasonally. And that's really, you know, our mission. Shannon and her co-founders started working on the technology behind Mainspring while at Stanford. And nearly a decade and a half later, the company has raised $228 million from investors like Kosla Ventures, Chevron Tech Ventures, and Bill Gates to deploy their linear generator at scale. I sat down with Shannon to learn what it takes to redesign a generator from scratch. We also talked about how Mainspring convinced their first investors to take a risky bet on novel technology, how they landed their first customers, and how they're helping to support grids struggling to maintain reliability in a changing climate. We started with Shannon's childhood outside Boston, where her parents taught her about building teams and working hard. I want to start all the way back with your family. I know you grew up outside of Boston with your parents and your brother, and that your dad worked in the hotel industry. And when you were 16, your mom went back to college to get her master's in computer information systems, and then re-entered the workforce after 20 years of being out of it. So I'm curious, what influence did your family have on, on who you've become? Yeah, I had I had an amazing childhood. Both of my parents were really focused on education. They encouraged me and my brother to do whatever we wanted. It was really really fortunate. And as as you mentioned, my mom did prove that herself when she went back to school and we were, you know, doing our own homework while she was doing her homework. We had to share the computer time. You know, she was learning how to program databases while we were learning how to write essays. So, it was really really inspiring and really impressive to see. Um, and then my dad worked super hard my entire childhood. He, you know, worked at just about every job in the hotel industry, starting the night shift and then working 
through a lot of different roles in the hotel industry. And he taught me a lot about the importance of building great teams and how critical it is to create an environment where people can do their best work. Um, and then that's how you build successful businesses. So both of them were just really inspiring mentors. Um, and, you know, I won the lottery with my entire extended family because I feel like they're just always behind me. They're always uh, supporting me. So very, very lucky. Were they supportive when you told them you were going to start the company? They were. There's no one in my family that's done engineering or done, you know, really technical development. So I think they were kind of like, sure, you're in Silicon Valley, go for it, <laughs> do what, do what you want to do. So I know with that encouragement, you went to Stanford for your bachelor's and initially you began taking classes in chemistry, but switched to engineering at the recommendation of a resident assistant. And before then, as you said, you know, you didn't grow up with people in your family that were engineers. And like many of us in high school, we didn't know what engineering really was. And so I'm curious, what drew you to mechanical engineering? Yeah, it was really the advice of that RA and the and then joining, taking that first sort of intro thermodynamics class, which is the intro for all engineering. And it got me super excited. So you know, the class explains basically how how the world works around you, a jet engine, a refrigerator, an air conditioner. And I was like, how, how have I gone through my entire life and have no idea how my refrigerator works? Um, and so, you know, I was hooked and really immediately wanted to learn more. And I think, you know, the professor that taught that class is Chris Edwards, and he um, eventually became my PhD advisor. And I think if you ask anyone that has taken his class, his enthusiasm is contagious and is just, it's just, you can really feel it. And he really instilled that curiosity and that enthusiasm, I think, to all of his students. Uh, and he also told me that mechanical engineering is one of the broadest engineering roles, degrees that you can take. And I think that was really appealing to me at that point because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so finding uh, a degree that was really broad and just allowed you to learn you know, what's around you in the world was really appealing. I know after your bachelor's, you got your first job at a blood sampling startup and you liked the mission, but you described feeling out of your element and that you felt like you needed more experience solving technical problems. And so you went back to Stanford for your master's. And as you just mentioned, your PhD also in mechanical engineering. What projects were you working on at Stanford to get that technical expertise that you were seeking? Yeah, I wanted to switch from uh, from the theoretical side to something more practical and physically real and just get a lot of that hands-on experience that I hadn't had before. And so Chris Edwards and I wrote, we wrote a grant to get um, funding to sort of help test the concepts behind some of the work that was happening in the lab at the time. And that's really where the idea of the linear generator came from. And from that project, I was then able to just learn all the tools that I'd wanted. So CAD, machining, you know, putting parts together, building electronics, writing software, doing the analysis, uh, you know, the analytical tools to figure out what was going on with the experiments that we were running. And so I just really felt like I was collecting all the tools that I had wanted to when I was working and, and just gaining the confidence that I knew how to do engineering. <laughs> So I know you met your co-founders uh, while you were at Stanford, Matt and Adam. And when did you know that you wanted to start a company? And when did you know that you wanted to start a company with them? Yeah, we knew we, that we were doing something important. We were sort of looking at like, this is, you know, power generation should be better. And we know that this has the potential to be a lot better. But we also knew that it was going to take a lot of time. It was an academic research project. Like it was very early stage. And we knew that companies like GE would never take on a project that was so early stage. So, you know, at the time, Adam had been doing diligence work for Coastal Ventures. 
And he kept telling them that uh, they shouldn't invest in certain companies. He was doing sort of basic thermo calculations and saying, hey, these these companies don't make sense. And so they eventually asked him, you know, what should we invest in? And, you know, he mentioned this project. And so we started talking more. But this was actually after I had already left Stanford. Uh, Matt and Adam were still finishing their PhDs, but I was uh, uh, had moved on and was working at Tesla. That's right. So this was 2009, and you're at Tesla as a mechanical engineer, where you helped develop the powertrain for the Model S. Uh, what what problems were you solving at Tesla, and then how relevant was it to your PhD? So after all those years in academia, I really wanted to step back and do something that had faster returns and see what building a product looked like. And Matt and Adam were still finishing their PhDs at the time, and so we weren't really considering starting a company. Uh, and Tesla was a fantastic place to work because um, it was a really exciting time. The work I was doing was on powertrain cooling, so it was really a combination of modeling, hardware, testing, design, all the things that I'd been learning about and got to try to apply in a real product. And it was just a really good op- learning opportunity for me. So at what point after Tesla, you know, you're at Tesla, it's an exciting place to be, especially in 2009. How did you decide to leave Tesla? And I think you weren't there for that long, about a year, is that right? Yeah, yeah, less than a year. And I really hadn't been there that long And when the conversations with Coastal Ventures picked up. And so, you know, I actually remember telling, you know, Samir and Vinod, hey, I think we should wait a little longer to start this company because I want to stay, stay at Tesla a little longer. And they were like, are you crazy? You know, the market <laughs> moves. There's no time to delay. If you think this is the way to do power generation, you have to go. And looking back, it's, you know, so obvious. It was just really naive of me to think that I could wait a little longer. You know, now I really see how the market is changing all the time and you have to move quickly. So I know your goal was to develop an entirely new generator from scratch that sounds really hard. What was the process of turning what was, like you said, academic research into a commercially viable product? You know, I just read a book that I thought captured this process really well, and I hadn't heard anyone describe it. It's called The Innovation Stack, and it's one of the co-founders of Square wrote it. And the basic premise is that if you could just solve one problem and create a company, you know, it would have already been done before (laughs) or a new product. And so what happens is you go in and you solve one problem, but then in the process of solving that problem, you break three more problems. And so then you go and you solve those three problems, but then it turns out you broke three more. And so you just keep solving the problems in front of you and keep breaking things as you go. And eventually you have this, you know, full new system called, you know, an innovation stack, which really allows you to, um, you know, enter a market in a way that no one else has entered it and have a really strong competitive advantage over over the the folks that are already there. And so I think that's what it feels like, is like we've just been constantly solving problems, breaking things, and then solving those problems to create this entirely new system. You founded the company in 2010, and that's when you raised your first round of $2.8 million from Kosla. Um, how did they become your first investor. It sounds like they were really pushing you to start the company, uh, but tell me more about them. Yeah. So after Adam introduced the work that we were doing at Stanford, we started talking more and then, you know, they, they became our first investors. And just, you know, one of the things that I really admire about them is that uh, they're willing to take on technology risk and, uh, you know, Vinod often talks about how he'd rather take on technology risk versus market risk. And that because if you take on tech risk and you solve it, then you've got this really strong um, competitive advantage. And and I think, you know, that's what he saw in Mainspring. And I, I'm really grateful that they have that mindset because I think that's somewhat unique and really enables companies like ours to to get started. 
And then going from those early days in that first 2.8 million round, Mainspring has raised $228 million over the life of the company. Uh, last year in 2021, you closed 108 million Series D led by Fidelity's Fine Structure Ventures and other notable Mainspring investors include Princeville Capital, 40 North Ventures, Chevron Tech Ventures, Clear Sky, AEP, KCK, Equinor, and then no big deal, Bill Gates himself, like as a person. Um, what has fundraising been like, especially in each of the rounds that you've raised, and what have you learned along the way? Well, uh, I learned it takes a lot of time <laughs> and attention, and uh, probably more than I'd planned for. Um, and then I also learned that you have to hire a really good team around you because you have to keep running the company while you're raising money. And so you try really hard to to make it as short as possible, but you know you have to explain what you do and 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 work with investors to to help them understand you know what the company does. And I'd say that you know the hidden benefit of the whole process is that it really forces you to sharpen your story and your planning and you learn a lot from the interactions and the questions because the investors we talk to are super smart. You know, they really understand the energy space and they really add a ton of value to the company. And so we can use that experience and get their feedback to really help us improve the company overall. And in the early days of the company I guess, how, how long did it take from 2010 to getting your first customer? Uh, and I know your first customer was Kroger, the largest supermarket chain in the country with over 2,700 sites nationwide. Um, so first, how long did it take to get your first customer? And then why is a supermarket chain interested in a linear generator? And how did they become your first customer? They, they were helping us, and a number of our early pilot customers have been helping us for many years. So you know, some of the, the energy managers that have been working there you know, really understand the space. They really understand what their needs are. And we're fortunate that they took the time to help give us input on what the product needed to look like, what it needed to cost, how it needed to work, what the form factor needed to be to work effectively for them. So some of those early pilot customers were folks that we started talking to many years earlier and were getting their input from before they even became customers. And, you know, Kroger you know, wants to provide its customers with the best service and costs that it possibly can. And so we're helping them to do that by saving them money on their electricity, adding resilience to their stores, and helping them on their sustainability goals. And then give me a sense of scale. Like, if I'm at a Kroger, I'm behind the store, you know, what am I seeing? How big is it? You know, what type of generation? What volume of generation are we talking about? Yeah, it's about 250 kilowatts. So the the system is about the size of a parking space. And so and it's it's a half size shipping container sized system. So it sits you know roughly in a parking space, and we make about the power that a grocery store needs. So we're well sized for a grocery store. And then in August of 2021, PG&E became Mainspring's first client to directly serve the grid, and you supplied the Northern California utility with a 240 kilowatt linear generator that works in tandem with traditional diesel generators to help support the grid, especially during times of stress or safety shutdowns. Tell me more about what role your generators play in making the grid more resilient. In the in the pilot program that we ran this summer, we were offsetting the use of diesel generators to help provide grid power during public safety power shutoff events. So they're called PSPS events here, and they're essentially when the winds are really high, PG&E has to turn off the transmission lines to avoid starting a wildfire. And so they use local distributed microgrids to help keep the lights on. And so you know we see that as a really perfect application for our system to help them 
increase resilience locally, manage fire, uh, fire risk. We operated on directed biogas, which means that we were you know, off- offsetting the carbon, the NOx, and the particulate pollutants from the, from the diesel generator. Mainsprings generators make electrical generation more efficient, as you've, as you've talked about. Primarily today, they're powered by fossil fuels. What role will your technology play? Or in this case, it sounds like it's already playing in the energy transition and integrating more variable forms of renewable generation onto the grid. Is there a world in which you know 100% of the input into your linear generators is clean hydrogen or, or other renewable-based fuels? Absolutely. And I think just to the technology we have doesn't use combustion. Um, and so we, you know, we react our fuels at a low temperature with, without a flame or a spark. And so that means that we have much lower emissions, even when we're running on, on things like natural gas. And that's a really big advantage and, and, you know, much lower emissions than an internal combustion engine. Um, and then on top of that, like you said, is the the real key ability, which is enabled by software, to run on 100% renewable fuels like biogas, green hydrogen. Um, and we're also talking to customers about things like green ammonia uh, and a number of other zero carbon fuels. So the ability to use that software to dynamically you know, shift between those different fuels is really one of the technology's greatest strengths. And that's what helps us deliver both grid resilience and helps us accelerate to those zero carbon fuels. Looking back on everything you've you've done and built at Mainspring, just about every founder that we've had on What It Takes has been somewhere within months, weeks, days, or even hours of shutting down their companies. Um, how close has Mainspring come to shutting your doors? Cash management-wise, we try to not get too close, but I would say there's been really scary parts when we've had big technical problems to overcome, and some of them were extremely daunting. You know, they're existential if you're running into the laws of physics or thermodynamics. There's just things that um, that were were very stressful, especially during the early parts when we were still taking the technology from sort of the academic phase through to uh, to building a product. So we're past past those now, but um, they were they were definitely were existential. Yeah, were there moments that the problem was so daunting that you thought that things wouldn't actually continue? Were you like, this is it, company's over? Absolutely. There were, there were days, I remember one in particular where I was sitting with Matt on a Saturday and we were just up against the wall. We knew that there was a, a clear and seal design that we had that worked in our first prototype, um, but then we scaled it to our second and it didn't, it didn't scale and we knew it was not going to work. <laughs> so we were just sort of like, well, what do we do now? You know, <laughs> is this going to, uh, you know, how do we, how do we solve this? And actually, you know, after many hours, this is where just having the creativity and uh, fantastic team, you know, Matt, Matt actually had an idea and he went off and designed it and it turned out to work. And it took, you know, it took many, a lot more people and a lot more time to get the finished product, but he, we were able to test the initial concept pretty quickly and get back on track. And that's actually happened more than once. And it's led us you know, one of our core values for the company is pragmatic optimism, because when you find yourself in those situations, you have to practically look at the problem, find solutions, but be optimistic that you're going to find one because otherwise you won't keep looking. <laughs> Do those moments still happen? Not quite to the level of existentialism, for sure, because we're past those. Physics are really hard to work around. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So they are fundamental laws. And if it doesn't work physically, then then you're in trouble. So I think there's 
always roadblocks that you run into and having a creative team that can tackle them is awesome. Coming up, Shannon talks about the lessons she wished she learned early in her entrepreneurial career. First, a word about our exclusive partner supporting this show. What It Takes is brought to you by BakerBots, the global law firm trusted by clean energy and climate tech leaders. At the top of the show, you heard from Travis Wofford, a partner at BakerBots. Basically, I help people build, buy, and sell companies. So if you're looking to raise money to build a product or take it to the next level, if you've built up a company and are looking for an exit or looking for a way to take it public, you call my team and uh, we help you out. Behind Travis, it's a wall of thick books. These are deals. So these are kind of of top-of-the-fold Wall Street Journal things that you can be really proud of. And that's just what's in this room. This is fun stuff. Those deals include IPOs, acquisitions, and private equity investments for some of the most influential clean energy companies and founders. Closing those deals means bringing more innovative, clean technologies to market faster. And that's what motivates Travis. These are entrepreneurs that really believe in the environment, that really believe in energy independence, either for the consumer or on a more national level. And it's really great seeing those ideas bear fruit. BakerBots knows energy, they know technology, and they know the needs of entrepreneurs pushing the boundaries of both. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to lawyers like Travis. Visit BakerBots.com. So in in the about 12 years that Mainspring's been around, you've achieved this incredible technical feat of developing a new generator from scratch. You've hired 250 people or have 250 people on your team. Looking back, what do you wish you would have known when you started Mainspring? Probably goes back to that original advice from Vinod and Samir is, you know, the market moves really quickly. And, you know, I think a good example of that is the solar industry the solar costs have dropped far faster than anyone predicted and you know are now at the point where they're cost competitive with fossil generation and that's really changed the outlook on what the grid can be and that's happened in a decade um and i think in our case we're really thrilled that the world is recognizing that climate change is a real issue there's a lot of momentum now behind those new solutions and i think the the support and and sort of emphasis behind things like clean hydrogen to fully transition off of fossil fuels can help us accelerate that even faster. And so just really realizing that the world can move more quickly than sometimes, you know, anyone expects is is something that you have to really take to heart and remember. I love that. Yeah, both can and has to. Exactly. What advice would you have for climate tech founders and engineers looking to tackle these really difficult technical problems like those that you've taken on? You know, surround yourself with awesome, smart, and creative people that have that mindset, you know, the pragmatic, optimistic mindset, because that's, that's I think, what it takes to, uh, to get through those. Great. Um, how has your leadership style changed, if at all, since founding Mainspring? You know, I don't know if my leadership style has changed, but I have definitely learned the value of having, having you know, structure and scaffolding in place to get things done. And I think you know, one of the thing, one of the advice I pieces of advice I got early on was that as you grow, every single thing about the company is going to change. As you, you know, what works at fifty doesn't work at a hundred, and so 
continuing to figure out and continuing to work with your team on how do we communicate? How do we share information? How do we encourage people to collaborate? How do we make sure that ego doesn't get in the way? How do you sort of create an environment where people can work most effectively? And then I've, you know, I've also learned that you have to make tough decisions faster than you want to. And um, becoming comfortable with that is something that you know, gets more familiar over time. How did you become more comfortable with that? Was it just practice and time? Just reminding yourself that you'll also make mistakes and you you keep keep going <laughs> and you'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Back to the low ego piece too. You you strike me for as long as I've known you as, as like a very low ego low ego person, especially given what you've built. Do you have any advice for people on how to embrace that kind of low ego approach to leadership? Getting input can be hard sometimes. You know, the way that I think about it and the way we sort of model it for the company is our one of our other core values is excellence without ego. And the idea is that you can't really achieve excellence, you know, ever. <laughs> You're sort of constantly striving for that. And so if you don't have the humility to take input, you'll get left in the dust. You know, the people that are the best at what they do are constantly improving, constantly getting input, constantly changing to the world around them. And and acknowledging the fact that they have to keep improving. So that's, I think that's how I try to think about it for myself as well, is that you have to keep getting input, keep improving, keep striving to get better. What has your experience been as a white woman leading a company in an industry that's overly represented by white men? Um, and I ask all guests, you know, men and women of every race this question. Of course, you you notice being the only woman in the room sometimes, that is something you can't can't ignore sometimes, but by and large, I've been really lucky to have a ton of support from my team and my investors. I know that is not the case for many people, and I know a lot of people who have faced roadblocks, and And I'm hoping that, you know, over time, as we continue to push for more diversity, push for, for just having a broader uh, set of people at companies and on boards that, you know, particularly in tech companies, that that will start to change. You know, it's overdue. And I also think, you know, my focus is really just trying to be the best CEO I can possibly be and create an environment where people are um, respected and valued. What advice would you give to other women who are getting their start in climate tech or have already founded companies in the space? You know, one is that maybe that you're finding something you're interested in. It doesn't have to be, I think passion is probably overused, uh, but interested in, it's not going to always be easy or fun, but having that strong initial interest keeps you going. Bigger picture mission helps. Um, and then the second is to, you know, maybe choose companies and colleagues, not just for their mission, but also for the values and how they live and operate because day to day you're working with them all the time. And so, you know, having that, daily alignment around values, I think is really important. That's hard to figure out. You have to ask, you know, scenarios to people when we do it, when we're interviewing um, to try to get alignment. And I know that if I was interviewing at a company, I would ask the same questions to try to figure out if there's good alignment on core values. Mm. Are you able to share one of those questions or an approximation of one of those questions? We ask, you know, we generally just ask people about, you know, going back to that excellence without ego, times where they've taken feedback and, and improved because it's it's an opportunity to share share that sort of ability to take take feedback and and make changes. Mm-hmm. How would you answer that question? You know, for a long time, I didn't realize how critical it was to give and receive 
quick feedback right after, uh, right after, you know, a meeting or an inter- interaction. And so even with the smallest item, like, Hey, the way that you said that might've made someone feel uncomfortable or, Hey, you could have framed that slightly differently and you might've gotten your point across better. Those kinds of small pieces of advice, I think really set the culture and the fact that they can go both, both directions. I get, I get feedback from my team all the time after a, you know, meeting with a customer or investor, like, Hey, maybe you forgot to put in this part or you could have said this slightly differently. And that could have helped them understand what you were saying more effectively. That that sort of quick and tactical feedback can really help the whole team improve. Um, and it's not necessarily even just feedback for you. It could be feedback for everybody because we're all trying to you know, articulate and tell our story effectively. You have been with your partner, Chris, for 20 years. Is that right? Yes, 20 years. That is Maybe a- more, 20, a little more, yeah, oh actually. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, what has it been like being a partner to him, a founder, a CEO, all at the same time as you've built this company? You know, I think one of the best parts about uh, about my husband is he's extremely grounded. And so he's constantly, you know, reminding me about the perspective of, you know, there's more to life than just than just your work. And so and so just having that perspective is so valuable because you can kind of get sucked into your own world. Uh, if Mainspring Energy succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? We'll be keeping the lights on, firming solar and wind, you know, helping to have dramatically reduced the use of fossil fuels across the planet. You know, and I really believe in 10 years, we're going to make a significant uh, dent on on climate change and on, on getting to the zero carbon grid. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. I believe it. I believe it in large part because of you and your leadership. Uh, and I'm excited to transition into our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers. First, if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? You know, the resident orcas seem really cool because they stick with their family for their whole lives. So I love the idea that you, you know, these animals that sort of stick together, they train their their kids, they live together as a family and just kind of stay as one one unit, which I thought is is really inspiring. It really is. They're They're so smart and... I also love that they're they're really ferocious and fierce too, which I feel like is a nice analogy for you. Um, what inspires you? Uh, you know, a few things probably. You know, creativity, fearlessness, and then you know, I'm also really inspired by people that help other people without expectation of recognition or reciprocity. You know, when you see that every once in a while, and it's super inspiring. Yeah, in a world that so often feels transactional, it's I think it's a great thing. To, to be inspired by. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? You know, I thought about this. I'd come back to work on this. I think climate change and is just really the biggest problem of our time. And I, I keep looking, looking at it and thinking about how, you know, even would I solve it in a different way? And I really think we're solving one of the, the world's biggest problems. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But what if you couldn't do mainspring? Then what would you do? I'd probably still work on climate um, but, you know, I think I've told you before, I'm fascinated by everything, you know, biology, medicine, economics, history. <laughs> I think there's a lot, psychology, there's a lot of really fascinating things to to learn about. Mm. So other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My team. What's the best investment you've ever made? Uh, probably my education. 
What's something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? That you have to sacrifice everything else to succeed. When, when did you figure that out? I'm still learning it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Was there a point in the life of the company that that started to click? Just watching other companies and other, other like learning from, from other mentors and other folks around me, I can see that, you know, it's a lot about doing the right thing at the right time and not just always working, you know, working hard. It's working smart too. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine you having a bunch of not great traits, but what is your worst trait? Probably that I eat too much chocolate. <laughs> I mean, it's good for you. Antioxidants. <laughs> if that's yeah. your worst trait, you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, probably. And then I'm uh, a pain if I don't sleep enough. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? You know, I'd probably create a reliable zero carbon grid and made it make it affordable and accessible. I think that the access part is something we always we often forget about with the focus on climate, which is super important. But the accessibility is, I think, really critical to providing sort of equal opportunity for everyone in the world. Mm, really well said. Part of our thesis is yes, it's decarbonization and digitization, but it's also democratization, meaning enabling access to as many people as possible and sharing the benefit of this energy transition. If there was just one or maybe two people who are going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Probably my parents. (laughs) What is your best quality? Persistence. And then what is the hardest kind of help to ask for? Probably when you think you're supposed to be good at something already. It's hard. That's the ego problem that I, I still see today. And when you think you're supposed to be good at something, asking for help on it is very hard. Are you good at asking for help? Uh, try to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They don't have product market fit. If you really knew me, you would know. Uh, I have a Extremely vocal and chatty dog. <laughs> oh, that's right, Luna, Luna right? And I'm Luna. covered in dog hair often. <laughs> uh, success is? Clean, reliable, and affordable electricity for everyone. If the world knew me, for one thing, it would be? Probably trying hard to make a difference. I'm most proud of? The team at Mainspring. And last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Uh, You know, hard work, a good team, and a lot of luck. Shannon, this is awesome. I'm so grateful that you said yes, even though it took months and months. (laughs) Um, I I really admire who you are and what what you've built and what I'm confident you will do in the world. So thanks for being who you are and sharing it with with the What It Takes listeners. Awesome. Thank you, Emily. It It was really fun and hopefully interesting for some folks. Shannon Miller is the co-founder and CEO of Mainspring Energy. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, BakerBots. To scale your clean energy business faster, you can reach out to their global team of lawyers. Visit bakerbots.com. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Media. 
Powerhouse works with leading global corporations to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Powerhouse Ventures just closed our second fund, and we have $70 million to back entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. And we are hiring. Powerhouse is hiring a marketing manager, a head of business development, and an associate. And Powerhouse Ventures is hiring an associate or a senior associate. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. That's powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. Follow us on Twitter at join powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. If you enjoyed this show, there are a few ways you can help us out. You can give the show a rating or a review on Apple or Spotify, or send this episode to a friend or colleague. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, through April 19th, each review of the pod or share on social media using the hashtag WhatItTakes enters you to win a limited edition WhatItTakes crew neck. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Rai Story Fisher, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. What It Takes.